Good morning, everybody. I'm Lois. I'm not the regular speaker at Forest View. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, so I'm actually part of a teaching team that's going to be working with you this summer. Raise your hand if, as a child, you were made to memorize chunks of scripture, specifically a psalm. Whoa. Okay, keep your hand up. How many of those same people with your hand up hated poetry classes in high school English? Yeah. <laughs> okay, we have a few takers. God's going to get you, actually, there on that one. Okay. But I want to ask you honestly, what grips you more to say, to hear, we see God's creativity when we look up at the sky, or the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork? Which one draws you in? The statement, God really helped me, or he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. Repetition, metaphor, simile, hyperbole. If you're breaking out in a rash, I'm almost finished. It is, they are so important in reaching an audience. And of course, many people in Old Testament times weren't literate. They needed these helps to remember. But it's kind of ironic because I'm sure everybody in this room is fully literate, but we're often too busy and we're too tired to read much or to read deeply. So these same techniques work for us. So we're starting this new series on the, the book of Psalms, 150 musical poems and, and songs and prayers that have been set to music and that have been used by the church, the, the, the Jewish and Christian liturgy for centuries. So my job today is basically to introduce an overview to the whole uh, book, to sort of frame it. Um, and to dabble a little bit, to introduce you to Psalm 1. So I'm going to be talking today about covenant, trees, weeds, and the word. Now, I'll bet if I took a poll, I'd find out that most of you who had to memorize scripture, you can still quote it. It might have been 40 or 50 years ago. They get lodged in there somehow, don't they? The Psalms excel at the language of the heart. Western thought exalts mind first, mind, logic, reason first. But in the Hebraic tradition of learning, knowledge starts first at the heart level. And when that's engaged, it works through our minds, and then it results, hopefully, in actions. So the power of a great poem or a great song, like any great work of art, is that ability to draw the reader, the listener, the viewer in to its own unique perspective and to kind of freeze frame that moment in time through an intense gaze. We stop, we look, and we experience. And the power of the Psalms is that years later, thousands of years later, those thoughts and feelings and expressions, they resonate with something deep inside us. But a whole summer on the book of Psalms, you say, why? Well, there's some pretty good reasons for that. Psalms is actually the most read book of the Bible. It's the one that's quoted most often in the New Testament. I think it says up there about 68 times by different writers. And Jesus himself quotes it most often. Uh, clearly, Jesus saw himself in these poems and he drew strength from them. He was the living word. 
himself, but he was applying words that were spoken through human vessels to his own circumstances. And not just in a sort of an intellectual, I know the text way, but actually surrendering to them, seeing his life in them, which is a pretty compelling reason to explore these Psalms. The Bible is absolutely honest. The Psalms in particular seem to me so real and so psychologically accurate about the state of our hearts. So as Christy was saying to us this morning, if you're mad, sad, or glad at God, at the people around you, at the world in general, you are going to find a kindred spirit in the book of Psalms. But wait a minute, this is God, right? How do you dare use this language with God? How do you dare complain about his treatment of you? For example, Psalm 88, if you know that one, it's the downer psalm, which I don't know if anybody's going to cover, and if, I, if you are, I'm stealing your thunder. The psalmist says, God, you have thrown me into the lowest pit, into the deepest, darkest depths. Your anger weighs me down. With wave after wave, you have engulfed me. You have driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. I am in a trap with no way of escape. How do you dare make a complaint like that to God? You can talk like that if you're in a covenant relationship. Now, we don't really understand or use covenant language, so I want to unpack it a little bit this morning. God initiated this covenant with, with Israel. He said to them, I'll be your God, you will be my people. The core of this treaty was the relationship and so when our psalmists are writing their complaints, they're lashing out at God and at others, they're always speaking out of a context of a covenant relationship with God that both parties had entered into. Now, what do we really mean by covenant? Or better yet, what did they mean by covenant? Well, actually, this idea of covenant uh, was very well known in the ancient Near East, and I did a little digging and found that there were basically six common elements to political treaties in the ancient Near East, and they found their way into Israel's covenant with God. So in the first part, the preamble, I guess, the covenant parties were identified. So usually it's, you know, the power group, the power king, and the vassal king. Then there's a historical prologue, which gives the details of the history of the relationship, and then you move on to sort of the meat of it, which are the laws. Basically, these are the terms under which both parties agree to, to work together. It represents the rights, the expectations, the responsibilities of each party. And then there are blessings and curses. So if you broke the law, you would be cursed in this way, in this way, in this way. Obedience would result in these blessings. And then the witnesses were invoked. It could be the gods, the important people around the heavens and the earth. And then they deposited the treaty in the cloud. Oh, the royal records room. So once again, God is using legal and cultural practices of the day to help his people understand how binding this was, how significant it was to him. So when you read a psalm where someone's lashing out at God, you have to understand there's a long and illustrious tradition to that. This long, long history, well, it was based on the law, the Torah. And at the beginning of, the, of this treaty, you get, you get this image, sort of the precursor to the formal covenant, covenant, which is when God meets with Abram. 
and they have this, this beautiful thing happening, I think it's in Genesis 15, where they, they talk about, and then it says in the New Testament that Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then you get Moses, and you get the, the law that's sort of fleshed out in, in Deuteronomy and formalized in the Ten Commandments. So how did the Israelites do with all that? Well, usually they failed spectacularly, like us. Um, and often. What about God's side of the treaty? Well, there is anger. There's grief. There's sometimes disbelief. But there is always continued faithfulness. So the psalm writers had all of that in the background when they're making their appeals because they knew that they could trust a covenant-keeping God. And so I, I just love this history because just to pick out a couple of points, when you think of the story of Moses, right? He takes the children, God a, a calls him to lead the children of Israel away from Egypt. There's, it's a spectacular display of miracles. They spend 40 years in the wilderness in God's boot camp, and then they end up being able to come into the promised land. So when their great hero, Moses, in Psalm 90, pens this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Wow. That means something. That meant something. Or another favorite story of mine. I love the story of Balaam. I like the bad guys in the Bible, actually. Balaam is such a, oh, an annoying guy, but I connect with him. He was told by the king of Moab, who was afraid of the, the power of the Israelites and the fact that God was with them, he, he tried to hire him, essentially, to curse Israel. Now, this is Balaam. These are his people. But he really wants the money, right? Like, he's, he's just such a, a, a piece of work, whatever. Anyway, he gets up there. He tries to curse them. And he, he cannot, literally, he cannot do it. He says, he finally says to the king of Moab, Balak, I think his name is, you know, I can only say the words that God puts in my mouth. Guess what words God puts in his mouth? He says, look, king, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? In other words, when you are in a covenant relationship with God, you're in. He doesn't take it back. There's no caprice, no moodiness to God. No matter what you feel, for God, he is in all the way. So as we look ahead in salvation, and Paul says in Romans 5 that, you know, we're not under law, we're under grace. Christ came, the law we couldn't fulfill. Christ came, he fulfilled the law for us. And to borrow from David, as, who was looking ahead, and as Paul does in Romans, it is the forgiven, those who are found in Christ, who are blessed. Now, let's get to trees. Tree imagery is used a lot in the New Testament as well, because in Romans 11, Paul talks about we're grafted into the big tree of Israel. All right, we're like this wild olive shoot that has been grafted into the nourishing root of the olive tree, which was Israel. In other words, we too are people of the covenant through Christ. All of the Old Testament, for better or for worse, the bad parts, the good parts, this represents our history too. Right, 
So you're in the treaty, but things are not going well. What do you do? You make an appeal. You seek an audience with the king. You don't have a lot invested in the relationship. If that's so, you choose to walk away. But this summer, as you hear different people from our congregation speak about individual psalms, whatever you're getting, you're getting the record of people who did not walk away. That's faith. Now, this summer, we're going to look at different types of psalms. Scholars go crazy about this. I don't know how, well, I just thought I'd throw it up there because it looks good. There are different styles of psalms different types of psalms, because they have a different purpose. So you've got the lament psalms, how to pour out your heart when things are a mess. You've got the hymns of praise, which focus on God's sufficiency and character. You've got thanksgiving, yay, God, you heard me. You've got the wisdom psalms, which borrow from like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and are set to music. You've got the historical psalms. There's a whole lot more categories. We're going to look at a variety this summer. One last sort of framing preamble thing about this. I've been really helped by reading a little bit of a, from an Old Testament scholar named a Walter Brueggemann. I don't know if you've heard of him. He does a whole thing on the Psalms, and what he talks about, he borrows some ideas from a Christian ph philosopher named Paul Ricoeur. And Paul Ricoeur, I'm going somewhere with this, said that as we move through life, we experience essentially three stages. We experience orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So what Brueggemann says, he shows how this is reflected in the Psalms. Because just like us, the psalmists were trying to make sense of life. They, 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 wanted, to, they wanted to make sure that their theology and their experience matched somehow. And orientation are just those times. These are the times in your life when you feel like what you know about God and the life that you're experiencing match. There's a connection. We, and we fight for this kind of equilibrium. We don't like disorder, and we don't necessarily like big change unless we initiate it. So then, those seasons of disorientation. This is when the wheels come off the bus, people die that you love, you lose things. You are driven to extremities of emotion and this feeling of like life is just a disaster. You can no longer say that life, your experience, and your theology mesh. You, you sometimes don't even have words to, to express your pain. And everything in you at that stage is saying, I cannot or I will not go forward. I, I, I can't. My life is not what I imagined it to be we were not designed to stay in this state for very long. And then there's reorientation. This is where you almost feel like um, a miracle has happened, a reality. You've come into some sort of new reality. Hope has been restored. There's a sense of gift that God has given you. It's not like you've forgotten all the terrible things that happened in the past. They're part of you. But unbelievably, it's become integrated into the new. And we're about as surprised as anybody to find ourselves in that place. So as we look at the various Psalms this month, and hopefully with this backdrop of covenant relationship with God, of orientation, disorientation, reorientation, it'll help us to understand more deeply how we can talk to God like this. But the point here isn't really so much that we understand ourselves better, although I totally think we will. 
But the point is to meet God and understand him better. I don't know about you, I do not surrender naturally. I really don't pray naturally um, or honestly. I think I pray, but I'm not always honest. And so all of us need training in how to be real with God, which is the one thing he wants. And I like this quote from Eugene Peterson. In the Psalms, we all enter God's school of authentic prayer. Okay, let's jump in. Psalm 1. We're finally there. Um, I, I, I know that this is, this is just my imagination, uh, but I, I, when I read this psalm, I think of a younger person coming to their older respected grandma or grandpa nearing the end of their lives, a godly man or woman, and them saying, Grandma, Grandpa, you, your life is amazing. You have, I would love to be like you when I'm your age. Can you tell me the secret? I feel like this is the answer. This is, this is the secret to life. So this morning, because I think Psalms are meant to be experienced as well as read, I've asked my husband, John, to come up here and to do a contemplative reading of Psalm 1. Contemplative means I want you to just open your heart, open your mind, and let the Word of God wash over you. You can keep your eyes open, you can close them, but this is for you. All right, so with closed eyes and with open hearts and minds. Hear the word of the Lord. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thanks be to God for his word. Thanks, John. So let's look at the psalm. How do you live a meaningful and honorable life? In the first verse, is a bit of a teaser, isn't it? It's like, I'm going to tell you how you're not blessed. How do you get in trouble spiritually? Now, this is one of those parallel structures in Scripture where they kind of repeat the same idea in several different ways. When I was a kid, I read this to mean that I had to stay away from the wicked. I wasn't really sure who the wicked was or how I would know that they were the wicked necessarily, but whoever they were, I needed to stay away from them. <laughs> and as an adult, I realized, my goodness, we're all wicked. <laughs> what if God stayed away from us? Wouldn't we be in trouble? Fortunately, he didn't, and he hung out with sinners and reprobates like, like me, right? So 
I don't think the point is staying away from people. Otherwise, you'd have to exit planet Earth. I think the point is more systems and ideas and ways of operating that offend God. And to me, the idea is, and I love the way it's repeated here, because how does it happen? You don't, you don't become a, a rogue overnight. You, you start in, with small choices. You start with entertaining ideas. Maybe you're frustrated with your, your, your moralistic upbringing, which gives you all these restrictions, and you think, oh. Then, then you start entertaining some ideas, which you think, hmm, I don't know about those, but, uh, but you know, the people that practice those, they, they seem to be doing okay. Like, what's the big deal? Then there's sort of a progression where you begin maybe adopting them a little bit more intentionally. You're kind of moving more in that direction. And maybe you're thinking, hey, this, this is a better way to live, but wait, maybe that's not really true. Maybe there really is another better way to live. Um, I don't really like those practices, but let's be real. This is how you become a winner and not a loser. And you still maybe convince yourself you can move out of this at any time. Sitting in the seat of scoffers to me has that idea of now you've kind of, you're, you're fully engaged and you, you're into the justification phase. Um, your path maybe has taken you where you never thought you'd end up, but hey, you're the captain of your own destiny. I think the psalmist, what the point is here is that life is, I mean, there's big decisions in life, but that there are mostly in our lives, just a series of small decisions that we make all the time that make up who we are. I don't think that's a condemning thing. I think that's an orientation thing. Who are you becoming? It's the little things that we do. Okay, so oh, what do we do with that? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This kind of gets me excited. Delight means your passion. You're hungry. You're longing to know what God has to say about stuff. There's nothing self-righteous or navel-gazing or perfectionistic about this. I like the word that Peterson uses in the, in the message translation. He says, chewing. You're chewing. It's like, you know, like a cow or whatever, but you're reviewing. You're thoughtfully considering what Scripture is saying to you. You're thinking about, how do I live this life? How do I do it? God, what are you saying? And it's, it's just a devotion. It's, it's loving the word because you see, you see life and hope in it. Uh, and this has also a long and respected history. In Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and, and the delight of my heart, for I'm called by your name. When Satan's trying to tempt Jesus um, in the wilderness, he says, People aren't going to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When I was uh, in university, there were a couple of Christian ministries that emphasized daily quiet times. Anyone ever do the, you know, you were taught the five minutes with God, anybody, or the acts? You know, you, you did that as a sort of a, let's, a preliminary, let's teach you how to pray. It's all good. It's all good. Over time, that is deeply dissatisfying. Can you imagine spending five minutes a day with your beloved or with your kids? Can you imagine only eating one five-minute meal a day? Like, it's, it's nuts. That doesn't work. And it, it's very frustrating to me because it's not sustainable. You know, in fact, even an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, it's not enough. It, it's like getting your toes wet. But what we're talking about here, this passion for the Word, is 
the abiding, the turning, the looking, the, the little, little breath prayers, the little things that you say to God, like, God, come into this. God, what are you, what are you saying to me here? What do you want me to know? Um, it's like redeeming the time. However you do that. I know people in this church who run and they play podcasts when they run. I know people when they drive to work, they've, always got, they've got a teaching thing on. I know um, people when they cross the field from the, or they cross from their parking lot to their workplace, they're, they're saying, God, would you come in to my work day to day? Everybody I talk to, Jesus, would you be glorified? Um, so this whole idea of meditation is more than just sitting quietly in a room with your Bible. It's a practice of life where you're talking about, thinking about, praying about, uh, singing about, grappling with what you've just read, all of that. It's a relentless pursuit. Uh, I think of it like Jacob who wrestled with God and he said, I will not let you go, God, unless you bless me. What an arrogant thing. I think God loved it. And so what does he do? He gets, uh, Jacob gets a new name and a bad hip, but you know what? He was a different man from that point on. Um, I talked a little bit about, about little things, and I, I worried about sharing this story, but I'm going to share it anyway. Um, when I was 19, my father died when I was 19, and I ended up going into youth with a mission just for, a, uh, I don't know, I ended up working with them for about two and a half years. I was a zealous, keen, immature, innocent lump of emotion at 19. Trust me. I ended up coming back from a training program and going for four months, taking a job for four months at a, uh, like a loan company. I don't want to say the name. I didn't even really, I was thinking, oh, these people can't get loans at a bank. You know, oh, I felt really badly for the people, but I thought I need the job. It's four months. So I'm going to work there. My boss didn't necessarily like me. I mean, I, I, he was okay. It was just him and I in the office. And I, um, one of the things that annoyed him about me is that I wouldn't lie for him. <laughs> so one day, for example, a, a customer calls who was, was angry, like an angry customer. And I, I say, just a moment, please. I go to talk to my boss. My boss says, tell him I'm out. Well, I just sort of froze, <laughs> just like, mm, like this. And he muttered something. He grabbed his jacket off the back of his chair and he raced out the door. The minute he got out the door, I said, I'm sorry. He's not in at the moment. Can I take a message? <laughs> okay. That is a really stupid example, right? Except that just before I left that job, um, money went missing at, at the company. It wasn't a large amount of money, but head office came down from Toronto. There were about, I think, three people, and I was interviewed along with my boss. There were just the two of us, so where'd the money go? I don't really know what happened, except that I not only didn't lose my job, but they offered me a job at head office, which I was thinking, you're kidding, I don't want to work for a loan. Anyway, but that, uh, the point, I, don't, I do not want to make the point is, you watch out for little white lies, because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that small choices made in a desire to obey God can reap unexpected fruit. People do watch what we do and what we say. All right, about trees. We've talked a lot, we've talked a little bit about trees. Trees is another one of those metaphors in scripture. There's the Genesis tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Augustine said that there's only one good, the Psalm 1 tree, that can only be Jesus Christ. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for pretending to be good trees when all they're producing is bad fruit, like that ugly sort of self-made religious thing. 
Revelation 22 talks about a tree that we're going we're gonna to get access to the right of access to the tree of life, which will overturn the tragedy of Genesis 3. Right. All this morning, I've talked all around Psalm 1. Psalm 1 really is a psalm of orientation. It expresses supreme confidence in God. It's, it is a simple picture that a life rooted in pursuing God and being rooted in his word is a good life. There's, there's no mention at all about adversaries of enemies of trees, both without or within. There's just this serene and powerful image of a person becoming who they were meant to be, all because they have oriented their life around the Word of God. And the result of that kind of ongoing choice and orientation, well, for pilgrims under construction like us, the promise is that the Lord knows you. He's intimately acquainted. It's not about your feeling. It is a fact. He watches over you and he charts your course. Satan, you know, was deceived in the, in the desert. He thought he held all the power. Jesus' only defense in that desert was the word of God. Satan thought he could kill the tree, and that'd be the end of it. Um, every successful weed, you know, in the end is really just a weed. Um, and so God bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Now, I forgot a slide that I really wanted to show. I wanted to show the weed slide. Did it already come up? <laughs> I love this. Sorry, dear. Okay. I wish you could see the whole picture because the weed bed, you, you all know this is out front. <laughs> I was like, why didn't we wear long sleeves and pants and those gloves? I just want you to know that they were not sufficient to keep the prickles from, from penetrating. There was blood, blood, truly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not much of a gardener, but I, I, I do like to garden. And of course, I, I do know that you have to take care of the weeds, right? You got to keep on top of the weeds because... They're tough little suckers. They've got, they know how to reproduce really fast. Their root systems are amazing and intricate. They can survive in conditions that other plants die in. In fact, we were pulling out beautiful shrubs that had been planted once. Same conditions, the weeds live. Weeds lived. And so, yeah, we had to do serious, serious business out there. So you can admire a weed. <laughs> in the end, it's just a weed. It's just the chaff. It doesn't give life to anything else. It sucks life out of everything else. It looks good and it grows strong, but you know what? It's not what we're called to be. So this morning, as we, cons as we consider these images, I just want to say that God is with us as we navigate life with him. The Psalms are our prayer book. They're our songbook. You can be real with God because you're part of a long history of people who have learned what it is to cry out to God and to ask him to help them in life. This table is for, is for, for sinners. It's for people who, who are imperfect, that are on the journey 
that are trusting Christ for their lives. If that represents you, you're welcome to come. I'm going to uh, invite the team to come forward, and we're going to pray while we do that. Lord, you are the lamp. You are the light that guides us. You are the living word. God, you are our song. You're our strength. We can tell you the truth. You know it already. Lord, I just pray your blessing for this church. I pray that as we consider what path we're on, that the path that we're taking, however stumbling our steps, that we're always directing our feet towards you. And so, Lord, as we take this bread and as we drink this cup, Lord Jesus, may we remember that you watch our ways. You are with us.